But the ironic byproduct of this TSA is to, once again, pardon the pun, light a rocket under... <laughs> Uh, the uh, uh, under the um, the current government in terms of growing the space sector, so it does kind of push back against the cuts that the, that that uh, Husic has made in the space sector, and I think forces his hand. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, Downlink listeners. U.S. space companies could soon be launching their goods and services from a spaceport down under. And I'm not just talking about what's in the fairing section. That's the nose part of the rocket that holds the payload. But U.S. space transportation companies like SpaceX, Rocket Lab, or United Launch Alliance should be able to take their rockets to Australia to launch from at least four locations. This episode is about a recently signed agreement between the United States and Australia that will have economic and defense implications for both nations. So to begin with, there are two major factors tied to location, location, location that make Australia commercially attractive. First is the fact that Australia is quite close to the equator. At the equator, that zero degrees latitude, the Earth's rotation speed is the fastest, a blistering 1,670 kilometers an hour or 1,040 miles per hour. So folks standing still in Darwin, which is the capital of Australia's Northern Territory, they're actually moving at roughly 1,620 kilometers per hour. And why, you may ask, on earth does this matter? Well, speed is energy. The faster your location on earth is moving, the more initial energy your rocket has before liftoff. So the faster a spaceport's latitudinal location is moving, the less energy, and therefore fuel, is required to break away from the Earth's gravity. You can think of the Earth spin as a free speed boost. So Economically, inside a rocket body, the less fuel you need, the more weight and cargo you can take. So that extra freed up stowage will force down the per kilogram cost per launch. And that means commercial space companies needing launch services can send more stuff up because the fare cost has gone down. The second reason launching from Australia is so attractive comes from U.S. commercial space launch licensing requirements. The Federal Aviation Administration is the license issuer, and unlike its Chinese counterpart, the FAA wants to be sure that if what goes up unexpectedly comes down, no one on the ground gets hit by falling fuselage. That's why U.S. spaceports like Kennedy Space Center in Florida and Vandenberg in California are located on the coast and why reentry missions occur over water. The increasing problem in the United States is scheduling a launch from the southernmost spaceports. Everyone wants to launch from there, and there just isn't enough room on the schedule for everybody, just when demand for launch is skyrocketing. On the other hand, Australia is a massive island. It's got coastline and open water, and the launch schedule is open. 
Now to dig into the deeper implications for defense, Australia's space ambitions, and how this agreement for the space industry softens U.S. international traffic and arms regulations, often referred to as ITAR, I spoke with Malcolm Davis, a downlink regular, who is a space and defense expert located in Canberra, Australia's capital. Here's our conversation. Hello, Malcolm. It's been way too long. Welcome back to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Laura. Now, before we get into the latest on space, space defense, and the space economy from down under, take a moment and introduce yourself and tell us about what you're working on. Well, I'm a senior analyst in defense strategy and capability at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, or ASPE. Uh, it, that's in Canberra, Australia, and ASPE is Australia's leading think tank on defence and national security. My focus in terms of my work is on space policy and space security, but I do a, a bunch of other areas such as future warfare, future military technology and, and major power geopolitics. So there's a lot of areas that I'm focused on at the moment besides space, but space is my number one passion. And just to decide, any upcoming papers that we should be knowing about? Yes, um, I'm just finished, just released a paper on the North and space, uh, which basically looks at how Australia is going to utilise Northern Australia as, as a, uh, for space purposes. And I'm now working on a paper on national space strategy, which will come out in February, uh, which looks at how Australia can develop its own national space strategy to guide the development of uh, our current space sector, which is, you know, is relatively new, uh, but very energetic and very, uh, very active. Uh, and what we need is that overall policy guidance, that strategy to actually bring us, move us forward in space, rather than have a, a more incoherent state versus state approach uh, to space. So that's what I'm working on now, in addition to various different other short papers and travel uh, to conferences, that sort of thing. Now, we are going to talk about the paper Space in the North a little bit later in the podcast. But first, just a wee bit more than a few days ago, Australia's former two-time prime minister, who's now the ambassador to the United States, and that's Kevin Rudd, he sat next to the Bureau of International Security and Non-Proliferation's Assistant Secretary, Elliot Kang, and they signed what's called a Technology Safeguards Agreement, or TSA. If you do a Google search, it'll pull up other agreements by the very same name between a good number of nations, and sometimes the search result will have nothing to do with the United States or Australia. This name is so frustrating, so nondescript, that you'd completely miss the point that it has everything to do with space, space business, and defense. So, Malcolm, be a pal. Tell us what a TSA really is and why the United States and other nations use them. Oh, you're quite correct. It is pretty vague as a, as a, as a, as a concept. Uh, essentially, what a technology safeguards agreement is, is it's, it's a legal agreement, it's a legal treaty uh, between states to protect the key technological technological and intellectual property interests of a state on a particular in a particular relation to technology. So in this particular instance, uh, the TSA that has been signed is regarding 
the ability to en enable uh, US companies to launch space rockets from Australia. And the TSA protects their intellectual property, the sensitive technologies that, that are associated with space launch from being stolen, if you like, or, or um, accessed in, um, inappropriately. And so what it does is it opens up the opportunities to do launch from Australia, uh, where previously that had been impossible because of things like ITAR and so forth. Uh, this technology safeguards agreement it basically provides a new path forward to enable these sorts of intellectual property issues to be resolved very easily rather than being bogged down in things like ITAR. Uh, and so it opens the door to space launch from Australia, and that's the key thing. And just to unravel the force and weight of TSAs, doesn't this type of agreement require ratification like a treaty? It requires uh, approval by Parliament here in Australia and by the US Congress, uh, and that's due to happen, I'm sure, uh, in coming months. Uh, I think it enters into effect in 2024, so we've got some time. Obviously, the uncertainty in terms of the situation in Congress uh, is, is a concern, but we don't anticipate uh, any problems really with the TSA uh, because it's in the US interest to be able to do this. Uh, it's in Australia's interest, and we can get into how it benefits us in, in terms of space uh, in this discussion. But uh, yes, it does require legal ratification at a parliamentary level. Okay, so now we understand the animal that we're dealing with. What does this latest TSA between the United States and Australia actually do? Now, I know you just spoke about some of the things, and that specifically launch from Australia for American uh, space companies. But why is launch from Australia something that, well, American companies would want to do? Because, well, we've got some, you know, launch places here in the United States, but there are some particularities to Australia that kind of make it a pretty cool place to launch from, no? Exactly. Uh, you know, as you say, there's a lot of launch sites in the US. I mean, Cape Canaveral is being the obvious one, Vandenberg and so forth. Um, but Australia's launch sites that we're developing now are much closer to the equator. So you have one uh, in the Northern Territory of Australia called Nullumboy, uh, which is near Gove. Uh, that's only, uh, uh, I believe, 12 degrees south of the equator. So if you can launch a rocket from uh, close to the equator, ideally right on the equator or as close as possible to the equator, that rocket picks up energy from the Earth's rotation, the Earth's spin. And so that means that because it's picking up energy, it's costing less in terms of uh, energy to uh, from the rocket itself to get into orbit. That means you can either put more payload in orbit for the same uh, uh, cost as it would uh, further from the equator, or it simply costs less to put payload into orbit. So that's the, the first advantage. Second uh, is that we're also developing spaceports further south. So there's a spaceport called Whaler's Way in South Australia near Port Pirie that's ideally placed for launching rockets into polar and sun-synchronous orbits over the South Pole. So between Nullumboy in the north, Whaler's Way in the south, there's a third launch site in Queensland called uh, Bowen, which will be able to do 
um, space launch to uh, equatorial launch, and that's 20 degrees south of the equator. Um, we're very well placed to be able to launch rockets and take advantage of our geographical location uh, in terms of the North's proximity to the equator. Uh, and also we're a stable and secure ally of the United States, a key partner under AUKUS. So therefore the benefits for the US in, in working with us to do launch and returns from Australia, I think is, is really important for the US. And to, to illustrate this, imagine a scenario, for example, where a SpaceX Starship Super Heavy launches out of Boca Chica, okay, flies into space, um, the, the Super Heavy stage returns to Boca Chica, but the Starship flies into space. It delivers its payload or docks with a space station, what have you, and then re-enters and lands at Nullumboy, where it's married with another Super Heavy stage, it's put a payload, is put in, it's fueled, it launches from Nullaboy in the Northern Territory up into space, delivers a payload, and then lands back at Boca Chica. You have this potential then for point-to-point -point launches into orbit between locations on the Earth and Australia-US uh, collaboration in this regard opens up that possibility for point-to-point -point travel uh, using things like Starship Super Heavy. So it's, it's not just about the launch, it's about the returns as well, the ability to recover spacecraft coming back from orbit. And then, so how will this help Australia then and its space ambitions? And I'm thinking that while the commercial opportunity is pretty clear, there should be more American space companies looking to develop business opportunities in Australia and vice versa. But who in Australia will become the winners? And recently, as you said, you wrote a report that focused on the efforts of the governments representing the Northern Territory and the state of Queensland. So economically, where will the benefits of this TSA be felt most in Australia? Pretty much directly in the commercial space sector here in Australia that's growing. Um, it, what it does is it really supercharges uh, the momentum for building launch sites like Nullumboy and Whaler's Way and Bowen. It really puts pressure on the government to support that. And there's since the um, uh, since the, the election of the, the current government, there's been a degree of uncertainty about its commitment to space. Well, this TSA essentially lights a rocket, pardon the pun, under the, under the, the current government, basically saying, um, no, this is happening. We've just signed a TSA where US companies or NASA is going to be launching rockets from Australia. So therefore, it's incumbent upon Australia to provide the launch sites to do that. So that actually means then that government must support the space sector. It must support the building launch sites. It has to support everything that goes with launching a rocket from Australia. So that's all, all the payload integration, the fueling, the range safety, all of that has to be developed. And if the government is supporting that, then there's really no reason why any government would then uh, hit reverse on space in this country, as has been the concern in the last few months. It really puts an end to any consideration within government to actually uh, reduce in investment in space. It has to commit to developing this space sector. And that's good for Australia in so many ways in terms of 
you know, uh, in, incentivizing uh, local companies to develop launch vehicles. So you have Gilmore Space Technologies that are developing its own launch vehicle to launch out of Bowen in, in Queensland. Uh, you have companies that now can build satellites uh, that can launch from Australian launch sites. Uh, and if the US are there doing it, and if they're launching from Australia, then we can hitch ride in that sense of not putting our satellites on US rockets, we can do that, but we can also launch our own rockets from these launch sites because the launch sites will be there. So I guess what I'm what I'm trying to say in a roundabout sort of way is that it it really uh, um, ensures that the US uh, the US and Australian space cooperation will lead to a, a stable and secure space future for this country. Now I want to get back to what I asked though in terms of where the economic benefits of this TSA could most likely be felt because you have looked so specifically at Queensland and the Northern Territory and then you also just mentioned a a, a third uh, launch location. Now I know specifically in Queensland and the Northern Territory that, that the governments there as in the regional governments you know, have been really thinking about how to diversify and how to grow their regional, you know, space economies. But I'm wondering if there are other parts of Australia that will also see an economic benefit from this TSA as well. Will there be? Yeah, yeah. Whalers Way, uh, obviously in South Australia, uh, which, as I said earlier, is, is very well positioned for polar and sun-synchronous orbit, will be an obvious winner here because polar and sun-synchronous orbit is important for space-based ISR, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance. So the US would have great interest in launching from Whaler's Way uh, in terms of spy satellites, uh, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance. There's um, a proposal to establish a launch site at Albany in Western Australia, uh, which would have a similar advantage to Whaler's Way in South Australia, in other words, accessing polar and sun-synchronous orbit. Uh, there's another proposal to put a launch site up in Cape York in north, far north Queensland that would be similar in many respects to Nullumboy in Northern Territory. So there's actually five launch sites being worked on in this country, one in Northern Territory, two in Queensland, one in South Australia, and one in Western Australia. Um, and are these, the- are these like commercial launch sites or are these yeah, government-owned? Commercial. No, we don't have government run. Uh, we're not like NASA in that sense. Everything is commercial. So the Australian Space Agency's role is to provide the policy guidance to the commercial sector to ensure that it achieves its goals. But really, we, we let the commercial sector lead in that sense. Um, so these five space launch sites would all benefit from the TSA in terms of ensuring their growth, ensuring you know, uh, um, essentially a, a a steady manifest of launches, uh, both Australian and US launches, uh, building that space hub infrastructure around the launch site to support launch, uh, launch control, uh, mission payload integration, and so forth. Um, and obviously then generating the second and third tier uh, spin-offs for low regional economies in terms of, you know, you have to, if you're going to have people operating a launch site, then you have to have build towns and cities and schools and hospitals and so forth. Um, 
And it also but, helps Australia keep some of its, you know, smartest people in country. I mean, I, I, a few episodes ago, I interviewed Daniel Faber, who is the CEO and co-founder of Orbit Fab, and he's from Tasmania. And he said one of the reasons he left was and came to the United States was simply because he was looking for some place to participate in the space economy, and he just didn't find it there in Australia at the time. I mean, this is kind of exciting for, you know, some of the younger generation to, to have, you know, five launch sites, you know, on Australia's soil, no? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that in previous months, as I said, there have been concerns that the current government hasn't been as committed to space as the previous government. Uh, so we've had, you know, cutbacks in spending. We've had a, a cancellation of a, of a major project called the National Space Mission for Earth Observation, or NSMEO, which really sent shockwaves through the industry. So there was concern that I think that if this sort of uncertainty continued, then you would see Australian companies shutting up shop and going overseas, and that would be the end. But now the TSA comes in, it provides that security and that guarantee that we are actually going to have to provide space launch for the Americans, which therefore means we might as well advantage, take advantage of it ourselves. And there's no incentive for, for the government to, to wind the Australian space sector back. So I do think the TSA, you know, sort of renews confidence in the Australian space sector that previously had been increasingly shaky. Uh, and so I think in that sense, the TSA is a very good thing. Well, why was it shaky? And that, that was something I wanted to explore with you anyway, because, you know, the Australia's national government, you know, has had space programs. And, you know, there's a question of developing sovereign launch. There's moon to Mars. Uh, and as you said, I mean, the National Space Mission for Earth Observation, you know, its, it's funding has been decimated. But Australia's space agency you know, has a policy called the Australian Civil Space Strategy 2019 to 2028. I mean, w w overall, what has been happening? Because really, until recently, it seemed like Australia, you know, was putting its money where its mouth is, at least, you know, at the national level. Well, you're right. In, you know, in the previous government, the, the Morrison uh, Coalition government, uh, Liberal National Coalition government, was very pro-space. It was the it was the government that initiated uh, the, the 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 path to space for this country. It established the Australian Space Agency in 2018. It established Defence Space Command in 2022. It funded uh, and supported space launch, uh, and it funded the National Space Mission for of Observation. Then you had an election change of government. You've now got the Albanese Labor government in, and whilst I think. The defence side of the government, led by the Minister of Defence, Richard Miles, is still very much focused on space. Um, the science industry and resources portfolio, led by uh, a minister called Ed Husick, is not so supportive of space. Why? So uh, he, Well, he cancelled the, the funding for NSMEO. He cancelled uh, cutback funding for, um, for space launch, uh, for access to space. Um, and speaking to the community, space community down here who are in the know, uh, I think the mindset in his portfolio is that space is, is an initiative of the previous government, so therefore we're not going to support it. And um, I think that everyone has been quite alarmed and concerned at 
this uncertainty about space and how it's just suddenly crept in into the picture because we've been making such progress since really 2015 onwards, uh, you know, and now suddenly everything's come to a crashing halt. Um, in 2022, this, the Morrison government established um, uh, a space strategic update that would have formed the basis for a national space strategy. Uh, that's now dead in the water under the new government. Okay, So um, everything has kind of ground to a halt or at least slowed right down. Uh, and the commercial space sector, the community, are quite concerned about it. So this TSA will charge things along again and force the government's hand. Uh, if they're going to sign up to this, they can't then do nothing. They actually but, do have to support it. And isn't that really interesting, though? Because, you know, just what you were saying, that the seeming reason, or at least the word on the street, is that the reason the space programs have been decimated in, in terms of their funding is because these were ideas that came from a prior administration, right? Or prior government in, in, in terms of parliamentarian governments. But it, it was the prime minister, right? Anthony Albanese, who was standing behind Kevin Rudd when this thing was signed. And this was during a state visit. So it, it seems at least if you take a look at the the picture and pictures, you know, are worth a thousand words mm -hmm. that he is giving more than lip service to supporting space and development. No, it, could yeah. this, could this be a pushback on his minister? Uh, look, I think that um, it, it probably signifies a recognition uh, and, and Albanese, Prime Minister Albanese really understands this of the importance of the U S Australia relationship. You know, when you look at AUKUS, for example, uh, you know, really critical defence technology sharing relationship. It's not just about Australia acquiring nuclear-powered submarines. It's also about you know, critical and emerging technologies in Pillar 2. Well, space, whilst it's not formally part of AUKUS, is, is you know, critical to the relationship. And I think that Albanese probably has recognised this TSA is a good thing uh, to strengthen the US-Australia relationship. But the ironic byproduct of this TSA is to, once again, pardon the pun, light a rocket under uh, the, uh, uh, under the, um, the current government in terms of growing the space sector. So it does kind of push back against the cuts that, the, that, that uh, Husic has made in the space sector and I think forces his hand. Uh, as I said, once we sign this TSA in, and we ratify it in Parliament, we have to do something. We can't do nothing. We can't then see these spaceports sit fallow. So we actually do have to build them. We have to support US launches from Australia. And, and then it is completely nonsensical for the government to say, well, we'll support US launches from Australia, but we won't support the Australian space sector. So I, I think that it, it is a good thing in that sense. Uh, and it kind of reverses the drift that was there uh, prior to the TSA being agreed. Um, and which which was causing so much concern amongst the Australian space community. Wow, that's really interesting. So then, you know, how does the current political climate, which does seem to be kind of in a shifting phase, counterbalanced by the addition of this most recent TSA, affect Australia's ability to meet the requirements of the 2022 Defence Space Strategy? And Maybe you should also, you know, give a short explanation on what that strategy calls for. 
Well, the 2022 Defence Space Strategy that was released by Defence Space Command um, talks about, you know, amongst other things, assured access to space, resilient space capabilities, an ability to work with the US and other key allies and partners to respond to challenges in a contested and congested space domain. Um, I think the TSA actually contributes directly to the success of that because if we develop these launch sites, if we develop responsive space access, um, you know, and by, by that I mean rapid launch into, into orbit uh, with either American or Australian launch vehicles or indeed the launch vehicles of other allies and partners for, uh, operating from Australia, then we can actually contribute to that resilient space capability uh, if we invest in uh, prolif- uh, proliferated, no, and I can't say the word, proliferated <laughs> LEO constellations uh, rather than big, large satellites in GEO. Uh, lots of small satellites in LEO make it more difficult for a country like China, for example, to take out our satellites in a counter space offensive. Um, we can augment capabilities. We can reconstitute capabilities directly from Australia. So we're not dependent on the United States to provide everything for us. I think this is a, a key point, is that when uh, the cancellation of NSMEO occurred, uh, one of the things that was suggested was, well, we'll just go back to relying on the Americans to provide that for us. Um, that was in direct uh, concrete uh, flow to what the sentiment had been up until that point, which is, let's do more ourselves, let's be, have, have more sovereign capability. This TSA gives us uh, greater ability to have sovereign capability because we need it to provide it to the Americans. And so therefore it contributes directly to the success of the 2022 Defence Space Strategy. It enhances uh, Defence Space Command's uh, importance in the scheme of things in terms of the defence hierarchy within Australia. It enhances the importance of the space domain as it's perceived. So I think all of these things are positive for defence and space. You know, TSA is very good for space and defence. Malcolm, thank you so much for your time. That was really fascinating. My pleasure. Always happy to help out. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.